hello and welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike, I'm the pastor at Watch It Baptist Church and you're watching our YouTube channel and I hope that you are here on purpose but if you have found us by accident you're very welcome too. We are just about to begin a new sequence looking at the letter in the New Testament of the Bible written by a man called James. The title of the series is called All In For Jesus because that's what I think something of, of what James's thrust is in this letter to Christian people uh, in his time and in, around, in and around his place. We're going to begin with a prayer in a moment and then I'm going to be reading the first 18 verses of James chapter 1. If you're not quite sure where to find it, uh, so after you've gone through uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and then Acts, you then get into all the letters that Paul wrote, starting with Romans and going all the way through uh, until you get to Hebrews, which Paul didn't write. And then after that, James is the next letter. So if you want to follow for yourself, that's how you can find it. Um, I'll be reading from the NIV version. Let's before we go any further, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we welcome you to this place, wherever we happen to be, whatever we happen to have been doing. We welcome you, knowing that you are here, but there's a difference when we say we want you to be part of how we think. And we pray that through our looking at this letter, you would help us understand something new about what it means to be entirely committed and entirely given over and entirely living for you. And we ask all these things in the power of the Spirit, in his wisdom too, and under the love of the Father. Amen. Okay, so I said we're going to read from that passage, and so we will. Uh, the version I'm reading from is online, uh, using the Bible Gateway app, and I'm reading the NIV version from there. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, 
but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. I haven't really got a title for this first talk looking at James's letters, but if I were to have one, it would be probably, do you want to be an oil rig? Let me explain. When I was growing up, I used to play a lot of board games. I really enjoyed them. They were a thing I liked to do and liked to do by myself, which may seem a little odd to you, but anyway, I could entertain myself for hours playing that little tabletop football game, Sabutio, by myself. I'd be both teams. I could line up six different Monopoly tokens and play as all of them, one after the other. And for a while, one of my favourites was a game of its time, I suppose, called North Sea Oil. And that game introduced me to different kinds of oil rigs. Now, I, I don't know much about oil rigs. In fact, I don't know very much at all about oil rigs. But I'm, the little bit I do know, I think might be helpful. So I know that not all platforms work the same way. Some float, some are tethered, and some are fixed. Disciples, I think, need to be like a particular kind of oil platform. Of course, James, the writer of this letter, has no idea even what an oil platform is. When this letter was written at some point in the middle of the first century AD, they hadn't been invented yet, probably even thought of. James, who wrote this letter, is very likely to be the brother of Jesus and the same man we meet in Acts chapter 15 at a thing called the Council of Jerusalem. And he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, according to historians of the time, James was later martyred. He was pushed off the city wall in Jerusalem uh, and then stoned and then beaten to death when it turned out that pushing off a wall hadn't done the job. So he died in about AD 62 and his death was not welcomed by all the opponents of the followers of Jesus, the followers of the way. The Pharisees were not happy that he died, largely because he had a really quite strict approach to observing Jewish law. So it's this James, Jesus' half-brother, that's believed to have written this letter that we're looking and it's similar in some ways to some of the wisdom teaching of the Old Testament. It's quite strong on instructions, sort of direct, this is how to do it type stuff. Uh, and it's bigger on that than it is on sort of presenting doctrinal theory, which is a lot of the time what Paul is doing in his letters. It also has some very similar themes to Matthew's Gospel and particularly to the ways in which Jesus teaches in Matthew's Gospel. So through the autumn this year we'll be looking all the way through the five chapters. Um, it is only five chapters, it's not a huge letter uh, and it's worth having a read of the whole thing, it really is. It's worth bearing in mind that this letter is about 1700, 1750 words long, something in that ballpark. And to put that into context, the, the rule of thumb on, um, on radio, on Radio 4, the BBC, is that something that's 2,000 words 
takes 14 minutes to read for broadcast. So even if you take your time reading something that's 1700 words long, it's not going to take you a terribly large amount of time. So this is a letter from James to those who follow Jesus about how to be a disciple. The letter is set up in these verses and James will build on what he writes here. Here at the start he says two really important things. Firstly he identifies himself as a servant of God and specifically of Jesus, his half-brother. This is important because it reminds us that Jesus was divine, that actually he was God, because that's how James is describing it. And it's significant because, assuming it was written by this man who was his brother, but that's someone who knew him well as a real person, someone who would have seen Jesus sleeping and eating at home, somebody who um, would have known what he was like when he was unwell or when he slept in, if that ever happened. Um, or perhaps he was somebody who shared Jesus' working tools with him as he was um, doing his family trade. He would have known how dirty his feet were at the end of a long day, and he would have um, been aware of all those very human things and still was able to recognise Jesus in the same bracket as God, God's son. Secondly, he addresses this letter to the 12 tribes scattered. He does that in verse 1 too. Now, this can be understood in more than one way. It can, of course, be uh, recognised as being a letter that James is writing to Jewish believers. Or it could be saying that Israel is now a wider concept that now includes Gentiles, that, that Israel is now the people of God scattered among all nations. Uh, people from different backgrounds and cultures coming to accept the good news of Jesus and recognising the power of his death and resurrection and the kingdom of God. Either way, we can look at the letter and trust that it applies to us, not because James had us in mind 2,000 years down the line, but because it's a letter about discipleship and we are disciples, so it applies to us. Looking at this particular passage, I would suggest the whole thing revolves around a single point from verse 8. And in that moment, James writes this. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all he does. James really does not want disciples to be double-minded. In fact, he would argue that someone who is double-minded will not receive anything from the Lord. Now this if you're anything like, like me, leaves you wondering what's meant by double-minded. I don't think, having done some study around this, that this has anything to do with being two-faced or hypocritical. Instead, it's something that would lead people to be described as um, being tossed around. That's what being a wave on the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And that doesn't sound like the kind of person who's going to be pulling the wool over my eyes, making himself out to be something that he's not or her. It sounds more like someone who doesn't have a firm foundation. This is a description of someone who can never be still and steady because the tide and the wind keep moving them. A wave on the sea doesn't really have a home. So instead, I think this double-minded thing is about trying to be in two places at once or trying to hold on to two different or competing ideas simultaneously. Have you ever tried to sit in one seat, in one chair, and save the one next to it for a friend or a, a relative. 
Now, unless you have a coat or a bag or a hat or something, you can end up sort of shuffling from one chair to the other and back again, trying to occupy two places as best you can. You can't actually be in both places at once. And you're always worried that somebody might turn up and sit in the seat that you've left empty. James says when we're faced with trials, our faith is tested. And the word he uses is similar to the idea of steel being tempered. It's exposed to heat and as a result is stronger and less brittle. James says that this kind of tough time is good for us and disciples who don't run from those kinds of difficulties see their faith strengthened. But if not, the alternative is that we end up being double-minded and trying to occupy two places at once, trying to occupy two seats at the same time. The commentator called Peter Davids, who says the trials talked about here are not severe persecution or a threat of torture and death, but it's more like a social rejection or a, a, an economic isolation. So people who were choosing to follow Jesus may well find that they were um, sort of pushed out a little bit, that they, you know, people wouldn't trade with them in the market or, or people wouldn't invite them to their social gatherings or whatever it might be. So they've been cut off from ordinary life because of their faith. People weren't buying their goods and services or whatever it might be that helped them stay um, involved in the community and economically secure and all because they were believers in the resurrected Jesus. And so under these kinds of circumstances they are to entirely rest and depend on Jesus, on their faith in him, on trusting that he will care for them because the alternative is to hope for the best and trust something else too. To put your hope or your, your, I don't know, your optimism in Jesus, but also to put your trust in something else. And that's what James is thinking is double-minded. He's concerned about disciples who put their faith in God and put their faith in their own ability and resources, trying to occupy both places again, trying to sit in both seats. The thing is, life is very much like being at sea in a storm. The waves are choppy and the wind really does blow. But times in the storm are not evidence of God stepping away. They are instead moments that show the importance of having an anchor. Our resources are energy and our knowledge simply can't reach the bottom of the ocean. So our faith is an anchor. That by trusting God we have that security because we can't get there, can't have that security by ourselves. Except that an anchor itself is dead weight and God is much more than dead weight. And so we're back to oil platforms. You see lots of them float. I used to live in Lowestoft and Platforms would come in and out of the harbour for servicing and, and repair and renewal. And many of them float and can be towed around. So they sit on top of the sea and they respond to the waves. They're not sunk by the heavy seas, but neither do they stand high and dry above the waves. And so our faith is like that platform. Because not only does it float on real life, our faith does that, but it also yields something rich and free-flowing. The goodness of God, a supply of resources that keeps on coming. It provides a kind of tether that holds us in place, but it doesn't allow us to be submerged. Now the reason I believe the passage revolves around this verse, verse 8, is that everything else 
is about disciples making sure that they are not double-minded. The first thing to do, it seems, is to be honest with yourself about whether you are trying to live from two different perspectives at the same time. After all, if you're not all in for Jesus, your faith isn't really faith at all. It's no more than an idea that you quite like. All in faith brings with it three healthy perspectives for our discipleship. Number one is seeing people the way God does keeps us sensible. We see that in verses 9 to 11. In verse 12, we see that trials cannot remove the presence of God. And in verses 16 to 18, we can see that God gives good things and that this is something that doesn't change. If you are attached to God like the oil drill, then you can see things the way he sees them and you can see people the way he sees them. James says in verse 9 that anyone in humble circumstances should take pride in his high position. And in verse 10, anyone who is rich should take pride in his low position. Riches and poverty do not influence God. Knowing God's perspective helps us to avoid being distracted by people's circumstances, or what they look like, or how they behave, or what their station is in life. You see, someone who is rich does not deserve greater attention. Someone who is poor does not, should not be avoided. Someone who runs a company should not be given greater honour and somebody who can't get a job or isn't working shouldn't be condemned. Someone who's recognised for their achievement is not worth more than someone who arrived in this country with nothing is not worth any less. Someone who has two degrees is not better than others and someone who left school at 11 or 14 or 16 is not worth less than others because God doesn't see them differently according to circumstances. Seeing people the way God sees them keeps us sensible. If you're attached to God like the oil drill, then you draw confidence from the promises of God. Verse 12 tells us this. Anyone who perseveres under trial receives the crown of life. The crown here, the idea of this crown is the same as the wreath worn by somebody who's won a running race. And God has promised this crown. The one who perseveres under trial is the one who runs the race keeping to their lane not looking side to side or looking behind them and not losing sight of the right direction not losing sight of the destination either not distracted by what other people are doing but confident in that promise that Jesus gives that is such a big part of our security God will never leave or forsake us, that Jesus has promised his spirit as an advocate, one who walks alongside. Staying in lane, keeping going, knowing God keeps his promises. Those are key to being able to see the world the way God invites us to. Trials cannot remove the promises or the presence of God. If you're attached to the oil drill, then you remember that God gives good things. Verses 16 to 18 say that we are not to be deceived into believing that God is mean-spirited or some kind of goodness merchant trading his goodness for our efforts. No, just no. Because we have grace. God's gift to us of things we don't deserve. God is good and gives us good things, not because we have somehow merited them, but because just because he is good. James says, Jesus, 
maybe, but James says every good and perfect gift is from above. And in verse 18, James adds something important about perspective. Disciples, he says, are the first fruits. Now, this is an important Jewish concept. The harvest time was celebrated as it started as well as as it finished. So when the people gathered to celebrate the beginning of reaping that harvest, they recognised that that start was like a promise. It, it's begun, so it will finish. There is, there is a beginning to the harvest, so there will be a complete harvest. And James says disciples are like the first fruits because they are like the promise of the completed harvest to come. Jesus will return and restore the whole creation. And so his disciples are those who represent that restored creation. Perhaps some of us struggle to get our heads around the idea that we are already the beginning of that promise being fulfilled. Disciples are evidence that there is hope for the world because we live in that hope. So, James says, don't give up. Stay faithful and be wholehearted. An author I find particularly helpful, and a theologian too, is a guy called Tom Wright. I've mentioned him before. And he wrote this about James 1, verse eight, verses 1 to 18. He says this, those who follow Jesus the Messiah are not simply supposed to survive. They are supposed to count, to make a difference in the world. So what does it mean to be an oil rig disciple? It means that you don't have to be adrift. It means knowing that the storms of life don't have to plunge you this way and that. It means not hedging your bets, not depending on anything of your own, but being all in for Jesus. It means not treating people differently for any reason, not being swayed by money or status. It means standing up for those who disagree with you. It means showing Jesus that you are committed to him, not just in what you feel, but in what you choose to do. It means not forgetting the ones you don't see or can't see. It means seeing differences as a reason to get close to somebody, not avoid them. And it means looking for where the gaps are and thinking how we might fill them. Ultimately, James says, being a disciple is about being all in for Jesus, not double-minded, not depending partly on ourselves and partly on Jesus, but being entirely tethered to, dependent on, and fueled by all of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that there is a never-ending supply of good things from you. And then we pray that we would have courage enough not to depend on anything that we feel or on anything that we can do for ourselves, but that we would be only tethered to you and your goodness and your promises. Amen. Okay, let's ask our three questions for this session. Number one, what does being all in for Jesus mean for how you serve your community? Question two, what does being all in for Jesus mean for how you read your Bible? Not just for whether or not you read it, but how you read it. Are you reading it like you would read a novel? Are you reading it in conjunction with something else or someone else? Are you reading it knowing that there are depths to explore? And how are you going to do that? Question three, what does being all in for Jesus mean for what you bring to your smaller gathering. So away from that idea of being all together, 
when you're just with that small little family connection of disciples, what do you bring? And how is that a reflection of how you are all in for Jesus? So what does being all in for Jesus mean for what you bring to your smaller gathering? And that could be something to do with mission or hospitality or prayer or, you know, all kinds of things. Worth reflecting on. OK, then that's it from me for this time round. As this sequence continues, we're going to take a roundtable approach again. So there'll be other voices, other faces um, bringing you um, their reflections, their teaching as we go through this letter, as we look at what it means to be all in for Jesus. Take care. God bless and I hope to see you soon.